Hello, and welcome back to Responding To, the podcast that aims to respond to questions old white dudes might have about gender and sexuality. I'm Lane, a transgender queer person with a master's in women and gender studies and another master's in performance studies. I don't know why up until this point I felt like my second master's doesn't apply here or something like that, but it obviously does impact how I write the show, how I present the show, probably all aspects of the show, so here it is. All right. So it's been a while, huh? I've been trying to figure out um, like what made sense for the podcast given the reinvigoration of uprisings around the crisis of anti-blackness and the murder of black people. And you know, I think what made sense was for me, a white podcaster, to be quieter on the airwaves and louder in the streets and on phone calls to my local board of supervisors. So that's what I did and I'm not gonna stop doing that. Um, But as I've been watching social media and as well as uh, been seeing what's happening in the streets, Uh, I see an increasing need for an education of folks, most especially white cisgender heterosexual men, around intersectionality and intersecting oppressions. So, I figured I could use this platform to uplift that idea, which of course was brought to us by a black woman. Kimberly Crenshaw. Thank you, Kimberly Crenshaw, for your brilliance. And let's take this moment, actually, to revel in and appreciate that so many brilliant ideas, inventions, concepts, and practices are brought to us by Black women and femmes. So, I'm going to give us an overview of intersectionality and do some work to apply it directly to our current moment, and then I'm going to leave you with recommendations for further engagement on the topic slash in this current moment, because, you know, that's my style. So, intersectionality. Kimberly Crenshaw, and I will be using her full name throughout the episode because it needs to ring loud and clear. Kimberly Crenshaw first published about the theory of intersectionality in 1989 in a paper published in the University of Chicago Legal Forum entitled Demarginalizing the Intersection of Race and Sex, a Black Feminist Critique of Anti-Discrimination Doctrine, Feminist Theory, and Anti-Racist Politics. She was specifically writing about Black women and the way the legal system fails to recognize the intersecting or overlapping ways they experience discrimination. Because the U.S. legal and socioeconomic systems are built upon a foundation of white supremacy. I think the concept of intersectionality is best explained in Kimberly Crenshaw's own words, so I will now be reading to you from that original paper where she gives a crystal clear analogy starting on page 149. Quote, The point is that black women can experience discrimination in any number of ways and that the contradiction arises from our assumptions that their claims of exclusion must be unidirectional. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection, coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination, like traffic through an intersection, may flow in one direction and it may flow in another. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions and sometimes from all of them. Similarly, if a black woman is harmed because she is in the intersection, her injury could result from sex discrimination or race discrimination. Judicial decisions which premise intersectional relief on a showing that black women are specifically recognized as a class are analogous to a doctor's decision at the scene of an accident to treat an accident victim only if the injury is recognized by medical insurance. 
Similarly, providing legal relief only when black women show that their claims are based on race or on sex is analogous to calling an ambulance for the victim only after the driver responsible for the injuries is identified. But it's not always easy to reconstruct an accident. Sometimes the skid marks and the injuries simply indicate that they occurred simultaneously, frustrating efforts to determine which driver caused the harm. In these cases, the tendency seems to be that no driver is held responsible, no treatment is administered, and the involved parties simply get back in their cars and zoom away. To bring this back to a non-metaphorical level, I am suggesting that black women can experience discrimination in ways that are both similar to and different from those experienced by white women and black men. Black women sometimes experience discrimination in ways similar to white women's experiences. Sometimes they share very similar experiences with black men. Yet often they experience double discrimination, the combined effects of practices which discriminate on the basis of race and on the basis of sex. And sometimes they experience discrimination as black women, not the sum of race and sex discrimination, but as black women. Black women's experiences are much broader than the general categories that discrimination discourse provides, yet the continued insistence that black women's demands and needs be filtered through categorical analyses that completely obscure their experiences guarantees that their needs will, be, will seldom be addressed, end quote. Okay, so to tease out a couple things here. One key thing I think Kimberly Crenshaw is saying is that intersectionality or intersecting oppression is bigger than just racism plus sexism to use the specific oppressions that she does. Because being hit with one oppression and then another right on top of that has a different impact than merely the sum of those two oppressions if creating equations of oppression were even possible. We might extend the analogy to an exponential effect rather than simple addition. One of her more nuanced points that I don't want to gloss over here is that black women may experience, quote, double discrimination, which she defines as, quote, the combined effects of practices which discriminate on the basis of race and on the basis of sex, end quote. And they also experience a separate and unique form of discrimination as black women, which is not the same as, quote, double discrimination of racism and sexism. And Kimberly Crenshaw is highlighting here that the legal system does not account for either black women's experience of, quote, double discrimination or their experience of a unique and distinct form of black woman-specific oppression. And I argue that this doesn't only hold true for the legal system, but for all societal systems because they're all built upon the same foundation. Rather than recognize the effect of overlapping oppressions, let alone the unique strain of black woman-specific oppression, the legal system, and perhaps all societal systems, try to force black women's experiences of oppression into one box, racism, or another, sexism. And as Kimberly Crenshaw says, this quote guarantees that their needs will seldom be addressed, end quote. Before I get any farther, I want to take a second to note her use of quote sex here, as in quote sex discrimination. In relation to some other episodes I've made, especially episode one, Sex versus Gender, Kimberly Crenshaw's use of sex conflates sex and gender. I'm going to remind us that her paper was originally published in 1989, which is now 31 years ago, and you know, critical gender scholarship and frameworks have come a long way, and her use of sex is comparable to much of the literature at that time. I do think that in this contemporary context, the word gender actually makes more sense inserted where she's using sex, especially because that would extend her analysis to trans, gender nonconforming, and gender expansive folks. 
I don't know whether or not she would agree with this assertion, but regardless, we can note that and not get hung up on it either way. So now that we have a working understanding of what intersectionality means and the context in which it was first published about by Kimberly Crenshaw, I want to bring our attention to the fact that while the concept of intersectionality can be applied to other identities and experiences than just those of Black women, it's important and pivotal to the concept that it was developed as a framework for highlighting the intricacies and nuances of Black women's oppression because that impacted the shape and structure of the concept at its core. Before we move to the current moment, let's reach a little farther back in time to February 1982. It was during this month that Audre Lorde, another very important black woman, delivered an address entitled Learning from the 60s, and as a part of the celebration of Malcolm X weekend at Harvard University. In this address, she said, quote, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives, end quote. And let's pause again to really just immerse ourselves in wonder for the amazing contributions of Black women and femmes. Okay, so again, that quote is, there's no such thing as a single issue struggle because we do not live single issue lives. And Audre Lorde said that in 1982, seven years before Kimberly Crenshaw's first piece on intersectionality was published. And so, bringing us to 2020, here's what I have to say. Reflecting upon Audre Lorde and Kimberly Crenshaw's brilliance, we cannot address racism without addressing sexism, or to use the term I prefer, misogyny. Nor can we address racism and sexism slash misogyny without addressing ableism, transphobia, classism, fatphobia, homophobia, and all the other phobias and isms. And here's why they're all connected. Each system of oppression relies upon the other systems of oppression to keep it in place. This is because systems of oppression all rely upon a hegemonic ideal, which is a white, cisgender, heterosexual, abled, thin, middle to upper class, Christian man who is a U.S. citizen whose first language is English, who is probably somewhere between the ages of 25 and 55, and so on. And I'm going to let you in on a little secret. In case you didn't already notice, the hegemonic ideal is pretty impossible, at least to sustain. There's a group of people out there who inhabit all of those identities at some points in their life, though, as you may have noticed, multiple of those identity categories are not fixed, so it's possible to swing into and out of them. The point here being, the precarious hegemonic ideal is at the center of all of these systems of oppression. They're all in place to protect and maintain that ideal and to denigrate and discipline all other identities. Everyone is praised and rewarded for working to be closer to that hegemonic ideal, and inversely, everyone is punished and shamed for the ways that they are not that ideal or not working to be closer to that ideal. And the systems of oppression borrow from each other to carry out this disciplining. So for example, there are aspects of racism that are repurposed misogyny, repurposed homophobia, repurposed transphobia, repurposed classism, etc. These systems are so deeply intertwined that you cannot solve one while the others exist. This is both terrifying and exhilarating for this current moment. <sighs> <sighs> 
It's terrifying because it means the job ahead of us is huge. We need to sift through, sort out, analyze, unlearn, and disempower a bunch of really toxic behaviors, attitudes, and structures. And when I say we, I do mean everyone. And here's one more really daunting thing about that. For those of us who have benefited in part or completely from the current status quo, unlearning and disempowering those systems is going to mean giving up some of the privileges we've come to think of as mundane. And that's going to be hard. It's not only going to be hard giving them up, but even realizing what those privileges are and coming to understand them as unearned benefits that only the privileged identities have been receiving is going to be hard. Get ready, stay vigilant, and stay prepared. On the plus side, it's also exciting because it feels like we're coming tantalizingly close to actually doing the crucial unlearning and disempowering. And if we did actually manage to do it, we might reach something like, dare I say, collective liberation. So here's the thing. We're in a pivotal moment. We are seeing a reinvigoration in the fight against oppression, largely mobilized around the crisis of anti-blackness, and we're also seeing a reinvigoration in the fascism that has continued to exist throughout the existence of this country, and also probably just like whiteness and colonization and imperialism as long as those things have existed. And though we do not live single-issue lives and there's no such thing as a single-issue struggle, the crisis of anti-blackness is deep and violent and it is a logical and powerful epicenter to structure our work around. While we remember that anti-blackness doesn't exist in a vacuum and thus is intricately connected to all other systems of oppression we live inside of. And considering these connections between oppressions, following the leadership of multiply marginalized folks will result in deeper, more transformative change. People who experience multiple marginalizations understand oppression in ways that folks who do not cannot. And with that understanding, I argue they are the best equipped to instruct others how to fight back against it. Now, there's a few things to unpack here. One is that fighting back against oppression is exhausting work, and putting that responsibility on folks who already experience multiple marginalizations is an unfair ask. So we need to find ways to follow the leadership of folks at the intersections of multiple marginalizations without putting additional labor or expectations on them when at all possible. This is an impossible task, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't keep trying. The second thing I'd like to unpack about this is to stress that no one is perfect and thus no one will organize or lead perfectly. We need to be discerning, we need to be aware and critical. We need to uplift the most marginalized, but we should do it in as holistic of a way as possible. If you follow someone's leadership unquestioningly based solely off the fact that they inhabit one or more one or multiple marginalized identities, you are unfortunately still perpetuating systemic oppression. Part of our job is to take people seriously. This means engaging with them critically and mindfully. If you're a white person, especially if you're a straight cisgender white man, this is a challenging time to figure out how to contribute. That challenge is part of our burden as white people slash your burden as the bearer of your multiple privileges. You will likely feel confused and or discouraged often if you are trying to find a way to contribute to the liberation of all people. I encourage you to breathe through those moments. Try to listen to those feelings. What can you learn or relearn from them? Everyone who is willing is needed for this fight. 
Part of the job of white people, especially white cis heterosexual men, is to participate in the work without taking very much of any marginalized person's time or energy. This is also an impossible task. As I said just a minute ago, no one is perfect. We and you will make mistakes. Don't give up. Keep trying. Get creative. Follow the leadership of those most affected. This means Black folks. This means Black women and femmes. This means Black trans folks. This means Black disabled folks. Black folks experiencing houselessness. You get the idea. Again, I truly believe that in this fight, we need to listen to the guidance of folks at the intersections of the most marginalizations. And again, a word of caution here. It's not hard for this to fall into a creepy tokenizing place, meaning seeking out folks just for their marginalized identities. And this is where that critical discernment comes into play. You need to be following the leadership of multiply marginalized folks that is well-intentioned and reflexive, not reinvigorating systems of oppression. This will mean that you need to follow multiple, multiply marginalized folks, as well as reading materials, attending workshops, perhaps engaging in writing exercises and dialogue with trusted confidants so that you can figure out what leadership is critical and radical and worth following and what leadership might not be. This is hard and sticky work, and it's important for you to do. This is a pivotal time. Dig in. Get ready to reflect often, apologize often, and learn a whole bunch. None of us are done learning. Hold on to that truth and keep going. There's more to be done and we are needed. Okay, time for the recommendation section. So in the show notes, I'm going to be putting links to Kimberly Crenshaw's original article, the text of Audre Lorde's address, and a Vox article that gives a lot of background on Kimberly Crenshaw, interviews her, and includes some analysis of how intersectionality is being instrumentalized in this contemporary moment. Or, well, the contemporary moment of uh, May 2019 when that article was published. So I definitely recommend checking that out. I also recommend checking out a group called Showing Up for Racial Justice or Surge. They offer really helpful workshops and events for a wide variety of audiences on topics pertaining to racial justice, ending systematic oppression across identity spectrums, and how to get involved. I'll put a link to Surge in my show notes as well. I also recommend checking out the podcast Octavia's Parables by Adrian Marie Brown and Toshi Regan. Each episode, they do a deep dive into a chapter of Octavia Butler's Parables series. So I recommend getting your hands on both books, Parable of the Sower and Parable of the Talents by Octavia Butler. Bonus points if you buy the books from a Black-owned bookstore. And then reading along with the podcast and really engaging with their discussion questions, they're offering a huge gift of study of the self, the ethics of the apocalypse and the brilliance of black women and femmes. I'll link to the podcast in the show notes and I'll link to a list of black owned bookstores where you can try to find the books. And since you're listening to this podcast right now, I'm going to guess that perhaps you're a podcast listener in general. Maybe that's wrong of me, but here we are. So here's another podcast recommendation. Uh, Radical Imagination by Angela Glover Blackwell. Each episode, she focuses on a different, quote, radical idea and interviews experts on it to talk about what it means, how it's manifesting in the world right now, and how it can be expanded to a wider scale. Examples of topics she's already covered include reparations, universal basic income, and police abolition. Highly recommend. I'll put a link to it in the show notes as well. 
Uh, and I think that's going to be it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Um, it would be awesome if you left a review for the podcast or even just gave it some stars wherever you're listening to it. Um, that would help it come up for other people. Um, if you'd like to do a little more than that, uh, you can make a sustaining monthly donation to the podcast on Patreon. I'd be super grateful. Um, truly no amount is insignificant. You can find that at patreon.com slash responding to, and I'll put the link in the podcast description and on the blog. So one more way you can support me is by sharing the podcast on your social media or just talking to your friends about it. Okay, enough about supporting me. If you'd like to be more connected to the podcast, you can check out the blog. It's responding, the number two, old white dudes questions about gender sexuality.home.blog. Not an easy URL, I know. Um, I'm going to put a link in the podcast description. You can submit questions or comments on the blog by clicking got a question or comment right at the top of the page. You can also email me your questions at responding to old white dudes at gmail.com, all written out, no numbers or different spellings or anything. You can also follow the podcast on Twitter. Feel free to tweet me your questions if that's your jam. The account is called Responding To, just like the podcast title, and the handle is at T-O underscore responding. Let me remind any listeners with questions that you do not have to be an old cisgender heterosexual white dude to ask a question. Thanks again for listening to episode 20 of Responding To, the podcast that aims to respond to questions old white dudes might have about gender and sexuality. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode and have a great rest of your day.